Dubs Weinblatt, welcome to Exit Strategy. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you. I'm so happy and honored to be here with you, Stephanie. You are a leader, an influencer in the Jewish and LGBTQ plus communities. You are a storyteller, an activist. You're a teacher. You're certainly one of my teachers. You are the founder of Thank You For Coming Out and co-founder of Craft Your Truth. You are elevating LGBTQ plus voices in new and creative ways and building interconnected and just communities and spaces. When you and I first met, you were doing a training session for Plaza for Keshet, which is an LGBTQ plus community organization that is doing incredibly impactful work. And the training helped our staff members be even more sensitive to the individual walking through our doors or calling us on the phone at probably the most vulnerable time. Why is it so imperative to plant and develop these sensitivities? Well, thank you for that lovely introduction. The word vulnerable stuck out to me. LGBTQ people right now in the United States are under attack. There are hundreds of anti-LGBTQ, anti-trans legislations either already passed or trying to get passed all over the country. There's an uptick in harassment and assault. And there was just in New York City, a pride flag was lit on fire um, in Soho. Even in New York City, we're not safe. Right. When someone is is moving through the world with a marginalized identity, an oppressed identity, an identity that is under attack, the vulnerability level is to the max. A lot of our loved ones are aware of what's happening in the world, how this legislation and these attacks have real world implications on ourselves, our mental health, our emotions. There's already a sense of vulnerability there. And so when someone passes away, our families want us to be respected in theory, we should be when we're living, providing language and understanding to people who are on the front lines of receiving these phone calls and not making assumptions about who someone's partner is, you know, not assuming a man's partner is a woman, for example, not assuming someone's gender identity just based on someone's, you know, use of pronouns. And so when the front lines of the folks who are fielding these really vulnerable moments, when we take assumptions out and we are replacing those with a foundation of information and understanding, then the other vulnerable moment that's meeting this other, you know, these two vulnerable moments that are meeting, instead of exploding in a painful way, are holding each other. That's why it's so critical for really anybody who's interacting with any human (laughs) to have an understanding And just, it's a baseline of respect. Totally. And I think the word you just used is assumption. That's where we get into the most trouble. I also want to rewind a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about a conversation that I was really honored that you shared with me. And you talked about your greatest concern. And you Mm -hmm. shared with me a clip from a documentary where you voiced this great concern. You had worked so hard in your life to be your own advocate, you were worried about who was going to be your voice in death Mm -hmm. when you no longer had that voice. I want you to talk about that. And I want to know where that came from. I think about death all the time. 
I'm scared of it, but I also am learning to embrace something that is inevitable, both for myself and everyone around me. So first of all, I am a transgender, gender queer person. And so that means my gender identity, who I, who I know myself to be, is different than what was assigned to me when I was born. Mm-hmm. So I was assigned female at birth and you know moved through the world and was told I was a girl and a woman for a very long time. It wasn't until I was 29 years old that I learned that my gender identity could be different than what I was assigned at birth and that it was not a man or a woman, but something outside of those two binary genders. Learning that opened up my world for me and helped me really understand myself in a very deep and visceral way and the world in a very deep and visceral way and how the world and our society has all of these social constructs to kind of keep us in these boxes that we're actually not meant to to be in. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio in the 80s and the 90s. And so there wasn't a lot of queer representation. The internet didn't exist. (laughs) So there wasn't a lot of access for information. And the only thing that I really saw on TV were always negative portrayals of trans people, violence and harassment and murder, essentially. Learning that I am a trans person and then remembering back all the violence that is perpetrated against trans people, uh, you know, I can't separate those two things. And so I'm always vigilant about my safety, especially right now I'm in Texas and I'm, I've been harassed in bathrooms more times than I can count. I've been harassed and verbally assaulted multiple times. So there's always this fear on the forefront of my mind. If people have a hard time respecting or understanding me while I'm living, while I can actually explain to you and educate you who I am and how to respect me and what does that look like when I die, what the heck's going to happen? Like, I, it just, it felt to me like all of the respect was going to go out the door. In our tradition, everything is so gendered and mm-hmm. so binary. You know, everything is set up as for men or for women. And as someone who's not a man or a woman, it really got me thinking of, well, then who's going to take care of me when I die? And is my, am I going to be misgendered? Unless I proactively plan for this, I'm not going to have a say in how my body is taken care of. I think because I'm thinking about it, I'm going to make a plan. I should already have a plan. But I think about all the other people who don't know to think about it. How are they going to be treated once their voice is taken? How are we going to integrate all of that into the community? What are you hearing about this? In my experience, we're not having these conversations. I'm not hearing people talking about it. I don't want to only focus on the negatives of what it is to be trans in in this country right now, because there's a lot of joy too, but it's really hard right now. We're getting attacked on all levels, everywhere we turn, both figuratively, literally, physically, emotionally, verbally. It can be a struggle to stay alive. I'm not thinking about P's and Q's or whatever of will and my plan. I'm thinking, how do I make it through this day? And I think there's a difference between the logistics of planning one's death and literally just trying to stay alive. I was having a conversation with a friend. I don't mean to take this dark, but here we go. There are threats of banning trans-affirming care already for, for children and young adults, but also sweeping for all trans people, which would mean banning hormone therapy, gender-affirming surgeries. There are laws trying to ban pronoun use. All of these things that are proven by the major medical associations that are life-saving, if those are banned, if I don't have access anymore to hormones, 
or if people are required by law to use pronouns that aren't mine, I don't want to live. And as dark and sad as that sounds, it's just true. I, I mean, I worked so hard to be who I am and to love who I am. If the access to what makes me who I am goes away, there's no point. That thought scares me and keeps me up at night. It's almost like I'm focusing more on how do I get up out of bed today versus other parts of like funeral and planning. And I think that might be a similar kind of vibe that's happening. You know how much I value your honesty and your presence. And I thank you so much for sharing that because as painful as that is to hear, yeah, that's the reality and it needs to be shared. And I thank you for doing that. That leads me to a really important conversation that I want us to talk about, which is suicide in the LGBTQ plus community, the youth especially. It's not only alarmingly high, it's going up according to a recent study by the Trevor Project. So I want to know how that's playing into your work from a social media point of view, How are you personally addressing this? I know you're not responsible for saving the world, but Mm -hmm. you have such a voice in this community. Talk to me about what you're doing in that sphere as well. And when I post on social media and I share my experiences, it's a way to show that you're not alone and that Mm -hmm. even when it's really hard, there are people who understand you on a visceral, foundational level and we care about you and we have your back. When I do, you know, the DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings for different companies and organizations, it's to build empathy. It's to build understanding. You know, trans people aren't just this ambiguous thing that exists, but I've never seen it. It's like, no, we're, we're everywhere. And we're regular people who just want to move through the world without harassment and issues. So I use my story and I use my platform to talk to and educate and teach other people to hopefully have an impact on the ripple effect. If I can connect with one person and that changes their trajectory of how they view the world and how they show up for trans people, I win because then they're going to affect other people. And unfortunately, I don't get to see all of the ripple effects that happen, but I know they're happening and that's motivation for me. I want people to really understand that these bills that I keep talking about, the discourse around trans people, they have real world effects. And it directly ties back into the Trevor Project study that you just mentioned. Because when young people see that the governments don't care about them and are trying to eviscerate them, how could a young person understand and want to live? It's terrible the more I can try to share and educate people to try to be like, no, there are real effects to this. When we do use someone's pronouns and their chosen name, it reduces suicidality by at least 40%. If that one adult shows care and respect for a trans youth, that's how much of an impact it has. And so if I can impart that wisdom on as many people as possible, I feel like I'm really trying to help mitigate some of this harm that's happening. And and you're right. I do think I'm shouldering everything all the time because it feels and is so urgent. And I have to remember I'm only one person and can only do so much. It is a constant battle for me too of remembering that. I'm honored to say I'm one of your followers. So <laughs> I see what you do. I see what your message is. And I'm quite confident that it is reverberating in the community and making an enormous difference. 
What do you think we in the end of life community could be doing? Well, I think you're doing it. Like I said earlier, I had no idea any of this thing existed until working with you all, knowing that it exists. And then also knowing that you are proactively doing the work to make more affirming life cycle moment. That's really spectacular. People my age, I'm 30, oh, I don't remember, eight now. Um, <laughs> I feel like my age-ish and older, we have embodied trauma of growing up, not seeing ourselves reflected in our communities. Whether we like it or not, our Jewish communities now have to work that much harder to heal and repair what we experienced growing up. And may I'll just speak for myself, but I know that this is a resounding narrative. Knowing that Plaza is doing this work, I think is really important. I appreciate you saying that. And I'm a believer that we can always be doing better in a lot of different arenas when it comes to Jewish life and appealing to everyone in the community. As I told you, Plaza is a partner along with two other congregations and clergy from HUC to create the New York Reform Community Hever Kadisha. So we are ensuring that we are serving everybody in the community and we are meeting them where they're at and we are being of service to them in this sacred moment for sure. So along those lines, have you ever thought about what end-of-life care or ritual should look like? Is it different? Is it sensitized in a way that we need to be aware of? I do think about that. I wonder, the people who are in this reform group, are there trans people in that group that are informing the trans care? Because that's important, right? It's nothing for us without us. And, you know, that's I didn't make that up. That's a resounding theme of oppression of don't do work without us, you know, not for us, do it with us. And I want to be gendered correctly. I want my body when they are doing whatever they need to do to it, to preserve it or whatnot, to be respected. And I have these visions of the Hevra Kadishas, whoever taking care of my body, saying transphobic microaggressions or saying comments about my body that you know, of course I would never know, but I still would know, you know, my soul would know. I don't want that. The work that you're doing to train and inform the people who are caring for trans bodies is crucial. No one's body should get talked about in death. If you are someone who has never heard of a trans person or seen a trans person's body, there are scars, there's hair in places, whatever it is. Sure. You're bound to say something if you aren't educated about what you're looking at. And I really want to avoid that for anyone who's trans had physical changes or, or not physical changes for that matter. I believe our Hefer Kadishas know that they are doing sacred work. The new Hefer Kadisha, the reformed Jewish community Hefer Kadisha of New York, are creating a manual with proper language to ensure just what you've said, mm -hmm. that everyone is treated with the utmost respect and that everyone is gendered appropriately for whom they are. I think we're all on a journey. I think we need not to assume and to listen and to learn. I know that you are an incredible voice that is not resting all that much because you're so busy discussing and sharing and lifting up this conversation. So with voices like yours, I feel that we will be in a better place. What's your next big thing? What are you thinking about? What's your next step 
in terms of this process and ensuring that people are made aware and well-educated? So I left Cachette at the end of 2021, continuing to build Thank You For Coming Out, my organization that has an improv show and a podcast and does diversity, equity, inclusion trainings. But I also, in the last few years, have dealt with thyroid cancer and a brain tumor, both of which, thank God I'm fine right in this moment. And so having those moments of awareness around how short life is put me into this perpetual state of thinking and wondering around what is my next big step. But I need to figure out how I want to most productively use my time. Stay tuned. I don't know. I do want to say I'm so thrilled that Plaza was able to run a program for clergy through the New York Board of Rabbis about this very subject. And I do believe that communities are hearing us and are listening and becoming more aware, certainly more aware today than they were five or 10 years ago. So that's a plus. Anything else you want to share thoughts you have before we close? I've been doing this kind of work for a really long time. I will meet people who are excited about the work, thank me for the work, and then it's kind of the the chapter is closed. It is more rare than not to have someone become this advocate, become this steward of the message. You know, I think we met probably three or four years ago at this point. You're relentless in the best way of making sure that this work continues to happen. For me, it's refreshing and it's also comforting because it reminds me that there are allies and advocates out there who deeply understand the work, are doing the work, are learning and know that there's always more to be done and using their position to make sure their community is also on board, want to get on board, learning why we should be getting on board in the first place, you know, meeting people where they are. I guess I just want to say thank you very much because it's comforting and it's such a strong reminder that there are allies and advocates out there who really understand and are actually living in their values in the best possible way to make the world, make their communities places of belonging for all people. So thank you. I'm honored to be your student. I'm honored to be your colleague and friend. That was so very meaningful to me. And we just keep moving forward. And that's the most important thing that we can do. Dubs Weinblatt, you are a gift to all who know you. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that. I don't know everybody (laughs) who knows you, but I am going to say that. You're certainly a gift in my community and in the world that I run in. And I thank you always. Keep taking care of yourself. Keep getting up in the morning and thinking about the next best thing you can do. Thank you. I appreciate it. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation. I urge you to visit our show notes and there's an email listed there. So if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, we'll renew our conversation with another topic And I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy. Exit Strategy.